This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to episode 59 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. First, the good news. After months of often intense and very difficult negotiations, President Biden on Thursday announced a bipartisan infrastructure deal. While the $1.2 trillion package falls short of Biden's $2.3 billion American Jobs and Families plan, it is a significant step forward, said the president, quote, when we can find common ground working across party lines, that is what I will seek to do, unquote. And that is what he did with the infrastructure deal. Biden also said he hoped the deal would lead to, quote, a true bipartisan effort breaking the ice that too often has kept us frozen in place, unquote. Now for the bad news. Not only has that ice keeping us frozen in place not even showing a crack, it got even thicker only hours before Biden announced the compromise agreement. That's when House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that the House won't even go near the hard-fought compromise unless and until Democrats in the Senate separately pass everything else Biden wanted in his American Jobs and Families plan. And whether that's possible is an open question right now. To do what Pelosi wants the Senate to do, the Democrats will have to use a procedural loophole known as budget reconciliation because that's the only way it can block a Republican filibuster. Said Pelosi, quote, there won't be an infrastructure bill unless we have a reconciliation bill, plain and simple, unquote. And there's the catch. For such a bill to pass in the Senate will require every one of the 50 Democratic senators to vote for it, and at least one Democrat has waffled, signaling his intention to vote against such a bill and saying, as he did today, that maybe he will do so after all, or maybe not. Last week, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin said he wouldn't vote for any reconciliation bill, or anything else for that matter, unless it has bipartisan support, said Manchin then, quote, right now, basically, we need to be bipartisan, unquote. In other words, the infrastructure deal may have been dead even before it was reached, and the partisan gridlock that keeps anything of consequence to the American people from being enacted into law is still going strong. Where Manchin actually stands depends on what he said Thursday afternoon, assuming there's anyone who can make sense of what he said. Judge for yourself, quote, I'm not going to comment on that any other way other than I can't wait to see it to see if there's things we agree on or not. But if they're going to try to hold one hostage over the other, and they're going to make the perfect be the enemy of the good, and by the good I mean you already have one piece of legislation, I think if it's put on the floor, I think it will pass, unquote. I spent some time trying to figure out what all those words taken together mean, but I gave up. Maybe you'll have better luck. In any case, as long as both sides of the aisle insist on a my way or the highway, all or nothing at all approach, that inevitably means that it's always going to be nothing at all. And so the topic for this week is what Judaism says about the benefits of compromise. Compromise is how things usually get done in democratic societies. 
Compromise, in fact, has done much to make this country great. Lack of compromise is what's bringing this country down today. Undoubtedly, the most significant compromise occurred during July 234 years ago. As July 4, 1787 approached, the odds were high that the Constitutional Convention then underway would never reach agreement on a system of governance for the Young Republic. Throughout the convention until then, the consensus was that there should be a single legislative body. Virginia proposed apportioning the number of legislative seats to each state based on its population. Larger states, like Virginia, would have more seats in the legislature, while smaller states, like New Jersey, would have fewer seats. New Jersey had its own plan. All states would have an equal number of legislators, no more, no less. In no way would they agree to be dictated to by the larger states in legislative vote after legislative vote. The structure of the national legislature was shaping up to be the deal-breaker. That's when Connecticut's Roger Sherman stepped in with what became known as the Great Compromise, and also as the Connecticut Compromise in Sherman's honor. Let there be two houses, not one, he said. One house would allocate seats proportionately, while the other would have equal representation. For any law to pass, both houses would have to approve. On July 16, 1787, the convention passed Sherman's Compromise by the razor-thin margin of one vote. Had it failed, there probably would not have been a constitution, and there probably wouldn't have been a United States. There have been many other compromises throughout U.S. history. Sometimes they were reflected in the actions of a single individual who put country before party. At other times, they were reflected in members of the two parties coming together on otherwise contentious issues. The ability to compromise is what helped make this country better than it was, and to make people's lives better than they were. Here are a few examples. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln, being fully aware of the great challenges the nation faced, named to his cabinet people he believed to be among America's best thinkers and strongest leaders at that time. They also happened to be the very four men he beat out for the Republican nomination. Lincoln chose this team of rivals, as they are known, because he put the country first. In January 1945, as World War II was nearing an end, President Franklin D. Roosevelt was promoting the idea that nations in a post-war world had to engage in, quote, collective security, unquote. One of the country's leading voices for isolationism at the time was Republican Senator Arthur Vandenberg. In a 30-minute speech to the Senate that shocked his colleagues and the nation, he said that the, quote, gory science of mass murder, unquote, had convinced him that isolationism was no longer possible. He then wholeheartedly endorsed the principle of collective security. Vandenberg's speech laid the groundwork for a bipartisan foreign policy that led to establishing the United Nations and NATO and to such important international agreements as the Marshall Plan. Just a half a year later, in July 1945, Harry Truman, who had only become president three months earlier because Franklin Roosevelt had died, had a Supreme Court vacancy to fill. It should have gone to a Democrat because Truman was expected to follow FDR's lead. 
From taking office in 1933 until his death in 1945, FDR only appointed Democrats to the high court. In 1937, he even tried to pack the court with even more Democrats. Truman, however, chose a Republican. Truman was sending a message to both parties. America had just come out of a hot war and was facing a cold one. America needed bipartisan leadership, not partisan bickering. 1964 was an election year. Lyndon Johnson had proposed the Civil Rights Act, but 21 Southern Democrats tried to kill it by launching a filibuster that eventually lasted for 75 days, one of the longest filibusters in U.S. history. Unable to break the filibuster with just Democratic votes, because a two-thirds majority was needed at the time, Majority Leader Senator Mike Mansfield reached out to Minority Leader Everett McKinley Dirksen for help. Dirksen got 26 other Republicans to sign on, and on July 2nd, 1964, these Republicans handed LBJ a monumental victory when the Senate voted 73 to 27 in favor of the Civil Rights Act. July 2nd, 1964 was just 11 days before the start of the Republican presidential nominating convention that would choose someone to run against Johnson, and Dirksen himself was to be the one who would put the name of Johnson's opponent, Barry M. Goldwater, into nomination. So handing LBJ such a victory at that time was putting country before politics. As an aside, several times in his nominating speech, Dirksen referred to Goldwater as, quote, the grandson of a Jewish fish peddler, unquote. In 1977, a compromise saved the nation's food stamp program, which was under attack by Republican lawmakers. Republican Senator Bob Dole and Democratic Senator George McGovern came up with the compromise that saved the program. Dole stepped in once again, this time in 1983, when he teamed with Democratic Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan to save the Social Security program before it ran out of money. In 1997, Senator Edward Kennedy introduced a bill to create what he called the State Child Health Insurance Program, better known as S-CHIP. If S-CHIP passed, as Republicans knew only too well, It would be the largest expansion of taxpayer-funded health insurance coverage for children in this country since Medicaid was established. Because Republicans control both houses of Congress, the bill seemed destined for the dustbin. Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott, in fact, said there was no way he would let that bill pass. That's when Utah Republican Senator Arne Hatch stepped in. He joined Kennedy as the bill's co-sponsor, infuriating some of his Republican colleagues and many conservative media commentators. But Hatch stuck to it, quote, as a nation, as a society, we have a moral responsibility, unquote, to provide that coverage. Republican leadership did everything it could to kill the bill, but it became law nonetheless. Hatch put country before politics. There's one last example. Senator John McCain hated the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. And when Republicans on July 28, 2017, put a bill on the Senate floor that would have effectively killed the Affordable Care Act, McCain left his sickbed in Arizona and flew to Washington to vote for that bill. Instead, with him as the deciding vote, he voted against the bill. Not because he wanted to save Obamacare but because his party was being heavy-handed in trying to kill it. 
There were no hearings held on that bill. There were no negotiations with the Democrats. There were no provisions for replacing it with something else. Its only purpose was to kill the Affordable Care Act. And so at the last moment, McCain said no. Without a well-thought-out replacement plan to provide Americans with affordable health care, he later said, voting yes would have been wrong. Compromise helped make America great. But compromise requires that people of goodwill put country before partisanship. It requires people who are willing to sometimes let go of some of their most cherished beliefs in order to benefit the greater good. Where are those people today? They're certainly not in Congress, that's for sure. We saw that earlier this week when Senate Republicans blocked passage of the For the People Act, which was designed to protect everyone's right to vote. We saw it yesterday when Speaker Pelosi pushed back on the possibility that the bipartisan infrastructure bill would ever make it to the House floor. We see it in Congress's inability to tackle the gun control issue, which is very much a matter of life and death. When it comes to gun violence and death by guns in the United States, 2020 was the deadliest year in decades. But from the first day of January through the end of May, about 54 people have been shot to death every day in the United States. That's 14 more shooting deaths per day so far this year than the average number of shooting deaths per day during these same five months in the last six years. The real problem, of course, is that the Republicans have been digging themselves ever deeper into the conservative right, while the Democrats have been doing the same in the progressive left. Proverbs has something to say to both sides. Quote, survey the course you take, and all your ways will prosper. Do not swerve to the right or to the left, unquote. Proverbs said that because the Torah itself insists on it. In Deuteronomy, for example, we're told to, quote, not turn aside to the right or to the left, unquote. Both political parties need to keep these and other Jewish teachings in mind as they go forward. But the Democrats need to pay special heed. The lesson in election 2020 is that an overwhelming majority of voters want no part of the political extremes, right or left. The Democrats should have swept a huge majority into the House of Representatives. But instead, they lost seats in the House. The one part of the federal government that was purposely designed to be the most sensitive to voter opinion. That voter opinion last November was that people didn't like the direction they were told the Democrats were taking. That's true as well of the Senate. Democrats should have easily wrested control of the upper chamber from Mitch McConnell, but the best they could manage was a 50-50 split. And that was touch and go until a special election in Georgia last January narrowly handed two Republican seats in the Senate to the Democrats. The 2020 message to both parties, but to the Democrats especially, is this. Either stick to the middle or get shoved onto the shoulder. Sticking to the middle of the road, though, will require both sides of the political divide to compromise with the factions within their own ranks and with the opposition party. Judaism has much to say about this. In Exodus chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law Jethro advises him to choose as leaders of the people men who fear God and who spurn ill-gotten gain. The sage Rabbi Elazar of Modi'in explained what Jethro meant. Men who fear God, he said, refers to people who are willing to compromise. Men who spurn ill-gotten gain, he said, 
are those who look beyond their own self-interest in deciding issues. Another sage, Rav Hamnuna by name, interpreted a verse in the book of Ecclesiastes describing the qualities of a wise man by saying the verse refers to God because God, quote, knows how to effect compromise between two righteous individuals, unquote. His point was that the wise man understands the benefits of compromise. Maimonides, the Rambam, summed up Judaism's view this way, quote, the right way is that disposition which is equally distant from the two extremes, not being nearer to the one than to the other. Whoever observes in his dispositions the mean is termed wise, unquote. There is a limit to compromise, of course. The sage referred to as Reish Lakish, for example, said that any decision reached must be righteous, equitable, kind, virtuous, pure, and pious. It follows then that any compromise must be just, equitable, kind, virtuous, pure, and pious. If a compromise doesn't meet that criteria, then that compromise should not be made. In its dealings with Republicans who put party ahead of country, the Democrats will have to consider this too, even if not compromising on some issues loses them votes. On the other hand, there's a heavy price to pay when compromises altogether pushed aside especially when a nation is as polarized as this country is today. The Book of One Kings relates how the United Kingdom of David and Solomon split into two rival kingdoms because Solomon's son and his designated successor had no desire to compromise in negotiating the terms of his kingship with the Twelve Tribes. Isaiah's words should today advise both parties, but the Democrats especially, quote, whenever you deviate to the right or to the left, your ears should heed the command that they hear from behind you, which says, this is the middle road, follow it, unquote. Until our politicians in Washington hear that voice in their ears coming from behind them, or the voters get fed up enough to vote the offenders out of office, I fear that what was once the beacon of democracy will be nothing more than a dim bulb. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org, www.shamai.org, and email me, please. Pray for our country and pray for the peace of Jerusalem and all of Israel. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy and stay safe.